The story goes like this. Recently, I heard about this couple. He's in his uh, 40s. She's in her mid-20s. And the way it was explained to me, they were having this conversation. And it was one of these um, conversations that if you've ever been in a couple with a big age difference, maybe you've taken part in. He was saying basically, what can you see in me? You know, you are so young and energetic and I'm this older person. I'm so much more serious. And they talked about this and talked about this. And finally, she, she brought the conversation to a stop by declaring, no, no, no. Don't you understand? I am Dennis Rodman. You are Phil Jackson. You ground me. I am wild. You make everything all right. And that's the way it is right now in Chicago, where I speak to you from right now. Our historic championship basketball team, the Chicago Bulls, is not just the winningest team of all time with 72 regular season wins now hurtling through the NBA playoffs. What's happened here in Chicago is that the Bulls are now the lens through which we view all of our experiences. They're the benchmark against where we're measuring everything in our lives. They've become our reality. Today in this hour, a dispatch from a city that has left the rest of the American culture and entered into its own little subculture, a basketball subculture. At nights in Chicago now, the Hancock Building, which towers over the city, is lit a bright bull's red. Bulls posters and souvenirs and caps and t-shirts are for sale in every video store and corner drug store, all of, in bars, everywhere. It's like living in China during the Cultural Revolution. Slogans and propaganda everywhere, all uniting us as one people. The, the, the name United Center was never more appropriate than now. There we are, united, behind the vanguard. Michael, Scotty, Dennis, Phil, Luke, our vanguard and all the others. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, I'm Ira Glass. You're listening to This American Life. And I know actually that many people who have never heard our program before around the country are hearing us for the first time today. So a quick word of explanation. The idea of this radio show is to document what's going on around the country in these United States, using all the different forms of radio storytelling that we can think of, including documentary, monologues, found tape, just whatever we can think of. Each week we choose a theme, and our theme for this hour is basketball. Stories of people who have a basketball Jones of one sort or another. Act one of our show today, The Bulls in Our Hearts. Act two, Bulls in a Barbershop. Act three, what basketball means, stories of people who love the game. Act four, basketball and commerce, in which, among other things, we visit Bulls star Scotty Pippen's car dealership. And act five, the greatest moment in radio ever. Stay with us. Act one in our hearts. As a way to measure the place of the bulls in the conscious and unconscious minds of everyday Chicagoans, consider this case, members of the radio jury, 
Anahid was watching a game with her parents. They'd driven in from Detroit, the parents did, for her 26th birthday, and started arguing over Dennis Rodman. Just a quick word to public radio listeners who perhaps are not following our national basketball pastime as carefully as they might. Dennis Rodman is the player who you may have seen pictures of with the colored hair, the tattoos, the piercings. He's the one who was involved with Madonna for a while, possibly the greatest rebounder of all time. Anahid's father did not like him. He's a rebel. He's a terrible man. Well, let Anahid tell the story. He said, what kind of role model is he? He's no role model. This man is the Antichrist. And I said, I don't think he's the Antichrist, Dad. What developed between them was the biggest argument Anahid has had with her parents since she was a child, since she lived at home. It lasted for an hour. And what was remarkable about it is that it got to the most basic issues any family argument can ever get to. He said, you like this craziness? You are just trying to go against everything of this family. You know that's not what we stand for. You just like, you're trying to go against the family. You're trying to divide yourself as much as possible from this family. By liking Dennis Rodman. All of a sudden, I was back. You know, I was back in high school all of a sudden, and, you know, he hadn't been so completely... Like, I mean, the fight got to the point where he was telling me, like, that I don't love him, and, you know, I'm trying to break up our relationship. He wants to have a good relationship with me. He can't even talk to me, and I don't like him, and I don't respect him, and, you know, and me telling him, like, I don't think you listen to me, and I don't think you care about the things that I care about, and you don't even know anything about me, and, um... And it's all because of Dennis Rodman. And it's all because of little Dennis Rodman. It is impossible to imagine fighting like this, Anahit says, over any other public figure. My dad, you know, my dad and I are both big basketball fans, and we used to go to Pistons games all the time together um, when I was in high school, and that was sort of the only thing we had in common. And um, I think that, like, the NBA to my dad is this really great organization. They're really wonderful, and he really loves the game. And, and, and to see somebody like Dennis Rodman sort of, like, you know, flip off the whole organization, I think to him sort of symbolizes me and my role in my family, and everything that I'm doing to him is what Dennis is doing to the NBA. Then there are the dreams. I realized a few weeks ago, actually, that even though I had not seen a Bulls game in two years, personally, and even though at the time I I really didn't care less about the Bulls, I wasn't following it at all, the Bulls are such a presence in everyday life in Chicago, in conversations, on the street, products and magazines and stuff about them everywhere, that even I was having having dreams about them. They had entered uh, my unconscious picture of the world to that extent. So anyway, here in Chicago, just last week, I went on the radio and I invited Chicagoans to call in and record their dreams about the Bulls. And people responded. Maybe five or six months ago, was it a really stressed out time that was preparing for an audit? I had a dream during that period that the auditing team showed up at my office as, as planned, only the chief auditor was Michael Jordan. I was really nervous and stressed out, and there's Michael Jordan in my office. And it somehow developed while I was having a conversation with Michael Jordan about the audit. 
and I wasn't wasn't completely prepared. But he knew I wasn't ready, and he decided that in exchange for oral sexual favors, he would make sure we passed the audit. And I had a conversation with my boss about it, and my boss was like, "Well, I can't really tell you that you should do this, but it's Michael Jordan. How bad can it be?" And we passed the audit. <laughs> One of the other really funny things about this is that it's Scottie Pippen who I find absolutely just adorable, not Michael. I'm 52 years old. I teach at DePaul University. Um, last Sunday, I dreamt that I was Michael Jordan. My dream was that um, my friend was having a bar mitzvah, and he knew Michael Jordan, and so I was going to be there at the bar mitzvah with him. I'm in a hot tub with Michael Jordan, and he says to me, I love my wife but you're my best friend. As, as weird as the Michael Jordan dreams are, the Dennis Rodman dreams are way weirder. Um, one guy caught up to describe a dream in which a mob was attacking Dennis Rodman because he was a communist. In another uh, dream, somebody else caught in to say that um, a woman said that uh, Dennis appeared in a dream of hers in a feather boa in an appliance store to tell the woman that the playoffs are fixed. It's fixed, it's done, it's fixed. I dreamed that Dennis Rodman was swimming in the ocean and he was way far out, really deep, and everybody was scared that the undertow, undertow was going to drag him away. I had a dream that Dennis Rodman was a woman and uh, the two of us worked together at White Castle. Except what was interesting about Dennis was that he had no hands. And on one hand he had a fork and on the other hand he had a spoon. I felt jilted because he wouldn't talk to me. So the majority of my dream was me feeling dissed by the female Dennis Rodman with a fork and a spoon for hands. They're playing basketball. Other people weigh in with their basketball stories coming up.
Act 2. Bulls in a Barbershop. A Chicago columnist wrote recently that the Bulls have become the city's royalty, but that does not really capture the half of it. The Bulls are like the soap opera that everyone in the city is watching, with this eccentric cast of characters that we all know. And watching a Bulls game, for most people, is a social event, where everybody swaps stories and theories and predictions. They're going to win. They're going to lose. They're going to sweep the whole series. They're going to lose today. Bulls are going to lose today. Coleman Brothers is an old-style barbershop on Chicago's south side, been in business 34 years, pictures on the walls of Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, Lena Horne and Minister Louis Farrakhan. Five chairs, five barbers. I visited while the third game of the Eastern Conference playoffs was on the color TV near the door. The Bulls played the Orlando Magic. Richard Coleman, whose chair is nearest the door, was predicting a 15-point Bulls victory. His brother James, whose chair is furthest from the screen, was calling for a four-game sweep, Bulls over Orlando. But sandwiched midway between the two brothers, standing in the middle chair, Tommy was the lone dissenter in a crowded room of probably three dozen Bulls fanatics, some of whom, remember, were armed with razors. It took a certain nerve to placidly insist, hour after hour, that Shaquille O'Neal and the Magic were going to pull this series out of the bag. I like Shaq. Yeah. And they're having a rough time at the moment. But you can't give up the ship, Jack. Right, can't give up the ship. Tommy's customer, Clarence, speaks up. He's not a fan of any Chicago team, so... They don't play no money. <laughs> Chicago don't play no money. You have to fight for every penny you get. Chicago don't want to play no athlete. <laughs> Athletes capture the, the, the spirit of the city, you know. They still work hard. They still put forth the effort. They, they go still home champions. broke. <laughs> they go home broke. <laughs> a week before, there'd been a big discussion in Coleman Brothers about Dennis Rodman. His multicolored hair, his tattoos... The fact that he showed up to a book signing in drag. Guys were not crazy about all this. But faced with the microphone, nobody wanted to say anything too negative about the star rebounder. And everyone had found a comfortable way to explain his behavior. I think it's all right. I think the public said, well, hey, he's making money. This, this is the main thing, you know. Yeah. Maybe he's done that in order to make money, you know. I personally don't care for his, uh, his dress attire, but uh, I, I think it's a marketing ploy to uh, make more money. So what can I say? So you don't think he likes to dress up in women's clothes no, for real? No, no. I personally, I don't think so. I, it's just doing it to get attention, to sell more uh, McDonald's cups. And, uh, as far as I'm concerned, man, Dennis is not all that that he make up to be. It's, you know, I think it's a big old marketing thing that he's doing too, man. And you see, uh, he done gotten rich since he got here, you know. And it all because of this crazy stuff that he does. What do you think about him dressing up in women's clothing at his book signing? I think Dennis, he, he, he kind of like, uh, he like dressing in women's clothes. I have a feeling he does. But <laughs> I don't think that the man really gay. I think if he was, he would go and tell it, you know. He would say everything else, so why not say that? So The Bulls-Orlando game was a pretty typical Chicago viewing experience. By halftime, the Bulls were ahead, 10 points. And after the winningest season in basketball history, it's hard for fans in Chicago to avoid feeling the game is in the bag. Bulls going to win, going away. <laughs> no, Orlando won't come back. They're too banged up. Bulls going to blow them out in the second half. <laughs> well, Bulls going to blow them out, but at least double digits. Except, of course, for one person. Bravely standing alone, against all odds, scissors in hand, a toothpick dangling from his lips. Tommy. Lando coming back. Win by five. Oh, they ain't over to the fat lady sing. People stream in and out of the barbershop. Everyone comments on the game. 
In the second half, when Michael Jordan takes a nasty spill, a customer shouts, Superman's down. The man sitting next to me introduces himself as Mr. Popcorn, a customer of Coleman's beginning 34 years ago, and a former high school basketball player himself. That's what I play. Basketball, baseball, football. So when you see these players, is there some player who you really relate to, the way they play? I relate to uh, Michael Jordan. That's the way I would play. Play it hard, man. You know, a guard. Get the ball to the guy and can shoot. You know. The effect of the Bulls on the local economy is usually measured in millions of dollars, but it extends to a thousand small shops like this one. Mr. Popcorn says that if the Bulls take the championship, he's going to sell Bulls t-shirts himself. And before long, he asked me the question that he asks a lot of customers at Coleman's. I have an NBA, uh, I have a Bull watch. Would you like to buy one? What you mean? No, I'm going to sell it to you cheap because you're a radio guy. I thought you said you was a Bull fan. I am. By the third quarter, I am the proud owner of a Bull's watch, marked down from $12 to 5 By the fourth quarter, with two minutes left on the clock, the Bull's leading by 17 points, and Michael Jordan apparently already sent to the showers. Even these die-hard Chicago fans started making jokes. What else is on, one guy asks. What's on the other channels? James pays off a bet he'd actually made against the Bulls with Mr. Popcorn, Guys start talking about a sweep, a sweep, that is, of four games in a row. And when the final buzzer goes off, it turns out that Richard's prediction, a 15-point spread, is exactly where the game turned out. What did I tell him before the game started? What did I tell you? 15. I told you to go win it. They go run away. Atlanta is just an inexperienced team. They doesn't have the experience to play with the Bulls. Oh, you said 15? That's what I said before the start. Did anybody bet you? Did somebody should have took that? They going to win, by. And if I tell you, don't ever forget this, if I tell you an elephant roosted up a tree, you better look up there, you'll see an elephant. Tommy looked around at the celebrating with a smile. I asked him for a final verdict on the bulls. So y'all are going to take it. <laughs> man, you just don't give up, do you? <laughs> so y'all are going to take them, old man. <laughs> Quote. <laughs> so y'all are going to take it. Quote. <laughs> Y'all are going to get the same thing the Magic's getting, a whooping, old-fashioned whooping. Then we all looked up, and through the plate glass window in front of the barbershop, we saw a car pull up. A guy climbs out with a brand-new broom in his hand and strides towards the barbershop. <laughs> He's bringing the broom to Tommy. The guy walks in and stands, broom in hand, near the door. What's the problem? <laughs> I told you I was going to come back up here now. You think that was gonna sweep, huh? You mean they don't sweep? I can't hear you, man. Did you see the bull run down the street? Was was Shaquille on it? The guy's name is Derek, a regular at Coleman's. Huh? Tom, I gotta go home and celebrate, man. Me and all my bull friend buddies, we finna go celebrate. You gonna jump on the bandwagon sooner or later, Tommy. We're going to make a believe out of you. No right. Tommy's unmoved. I'm already talking to Gary Payton. Boy, we're going to do it in four two. Gary Payton. See out. You've got to respect somebody who'll publicly argue against what may be the best basketball team ever to play the game. It takes a certain amount of guts. But soon enough, this Bulls team will have to fade, especially given the age of the players, mostly in their 30s. And it can be a sobering thought. That years from now, when all these guys are watching some new incarnation of the Bulls, this is the moment, this is the time, right now, that they're going to remember together. One of the younger customers, a guy whose name I think was Edgar, 
sat in Richard's chair, the electric clippers whirring, and contemplated this. Should be happy that you can say that, hey, I was sitting there watching them when they did all that. So, hey, I know I am. <laughs> Tell my grandchildren when I get real old, you know, I was there when the Bulls won all them games. Probably last year I went to a couple of games, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, remember those days when Michael Jordan was still playing at his peak? Remember when Rodman was the only guy in the league with multicolored hair? Remember when they were on that legendary team together? Dennis, Michael, Scotty. That's how it's going to be for everybody. That that who was that that was here, you know, when the Bulls was doing this. You know, that's how it's going to be. Act three, the meaning of basketball. I wonder if it would be <laughs> possible to make up a more pretentious name for a section of a radio program, the meaning of basketball. The fact is, the meaning of basketball is whatever each player and each fan makes of it, right? St- stay with me here, okay? Loving sports, I'm arguing to you right now, is like any kind of love. It's idiosyncratic, and there's no way to account for what happens to grab your imagination and your heart about a game. In this act of the show, we bring you a couple of stories from different parts of the country, and we begin right here in Chicago. I know that will be, (laughs) at this point in the show, a tremendous surprise to you. We begin here in Chicago, uh, an explanation of one particular pleasure of the game. There is no greater pleasure than being a Bulls hater in a Bulls-loving town. David Isaacson is a Chicago playwright, and he is not just any Bulls hater. He's a Bulls hater of the most reviled kind in Chicago. He is a fan of the Detroit Pistons. In 1988, 89, and 90, the Bulls lost the NBA playoffs to the Pistons, a team that most Chicagoans see as thuggish, dirty, and worst of all, whiny. How to describe the sweet, sweet pleasure of entering a drinking establishment full of established drinkers? and proudly letting out a roar whenever the diminutive Detroit guard Isaiah Thomas scooped a layup high off the backboard into the basket, or Vinny, the microwave Johnson, would launch a shot with, oh, three or four opposing players hanging from his thick arms and legs, or Joe Dumars, covering the great god Michael Jordan, would, through fainting, decoying, and overplaying, manipulate MJ into the waiting arms and oh-so-solid body of Bill Lambeer. 
to let out a roar as those around me grumbled, all the time harboring grandiose notions that, in so roaring, I was courting a barroom beating at the hands of, say, those five beefy guys at the bar with a pitcher of old style, the identical number 23 red and white jerseys, and, shaved into their crew cuts Anthony Mason style, the letters B, U, L, L, S, respectively. To stand alone against a sea of popular opinion, to be associated with the great malevolent force, shady underground figures, the Detroit Pistons, this was a spectacular seduction. To be a Pistons fan in Chicago, like being a Navy fan at West Point, or a Dodgers fan in Manhattan in the old days, seemed heroic. I was Pancho Villa on a border raid, Bartleby the Scrivener telling his boss, I would prefer not to. Brando and the Wild One rebelling against, what do you got? It was this same contrary impulse, however, the thrill of being the lone fan, that turned my girlfriend against me. Accepted into an elite East Coast graduate school, she suddenly found herself surrounded by elite East Coast fans of the New York Knickerbockers. Though up to this point her interest in the Bulls had consisted wholly in the observation that point guard B.J. Armstrong was so cute and in an almost obsessive curiosity regarding that odd bald patch in the middle of center Bill Cartwright's beard, her grad school experience turned her into a raving rooter for the team that I so proudly despised. In a world of Knicks lovers, she chose to be the lone fan of the Bulls. Watching games with her became an unsettling experience. When our teams would clash, I would catch her eyeing me strangely, as if contemplating which Bill Lame Beer thrown elbow or Rick Mahorn cheap shot I was complicit in, in what ways I, the bully by association, might have wronged those near and dear to her, and subsequently what punishments or deprivations she might legitimately inflict on me in response. This year, as everyone in the world now knows, the Bulls won 72 games and lost a mere 10, making them, numerically at least, the most successful team of all time. It is also the year I, without meaning to, traded in the great and noble pleasure of publicly hating the Bulls in every bar, tavern, and speakeasy of this beer-swilling town for the rather common, tawdry pleasure of joining the masses and whooping up every Jordan jumper, Pippin putback, and Kukosh Karam. And why? Well, for one thing, three of my old Pistons have joined the current version of the Bulls. John Spider Sally, who can still block a shot with the best of them. James Buddha Edwards, who, at the age of 40, still successfully practices his specialty, the fadeaway chip shot from the paint. And, of course, Dennis the Worm Rodman. I've always loved his sloppy, relentless enthusiasm on the court, but what's won me over lately is his T-shirt collection. Recent slogans have included... I'm not gay, but my boyfriend is, and I don't mind straight people as long as they act gay in public. But more than that, I think one can say that for me, familiarity has bred respect. Most of these bulls are my age or older. Jordan's my age, and as my body changes, as joints respond less readily, bruises take longer to heal, and hangovers get harder to cure, I have grown to appreciate MJ's ability to recreate himself. The mad-dash, fearless dunking of his youth has been replaced by safer, more adult practices. Watch as Michael becomes a post-up player. Watch his transformation into a master of the three-point heave. See Michael learn and perfect the unstoppable Larry Bird fadeaway. Facing the cameras for the jigillionth time, 
Following a perfect evening spent revealing the tragic flaws of yet another squad of opponents who had been, until meeting the Bulls, flirting with respectability, Jordan, Pippen, and their teammates exude a pungent, delicious aura. Invincibility is inevitably sexy. These are bodhisattvas approaching Buddhahood, utterly at peace with themselves and yet at the same time striving mightily for the next level of enlightenment. Gone for me the rebel's glory. Gone the exalted status of an arch antagonist. Gone the thrill of withstanding the bull's fans contumely. Woe, woe is me. Go, go bulls. David Isaacson is a Chicago playwright. And now we have for you this rap, part of what seems to be a burgeoning genre of music that perhaps you have not heard of, basketball stars doing raps, some of them, most of them, profoundly mediocre. This one from Seattle Sonics star Gary Payton. Living legal in large, Jinkbee's the man in charge. He's got a game on you. Coming up as a youngster, the G had faith. I always pray to God that I'll make it one day. And now my dreams align. My mama used to tell me, you gotta strive and try to be the best that you can be to survive. Now I'm living legal and large. Got a bad bank account and a bunch of credit cards. Making the opponents bow down on the court. If you wanna harm me, it's cause I love the sport. Had a fan yelling for joy because I'm bouncing a ball. Or I'm like Shanae, they call me payday. The big ball, hell and kill you what you want. Slam dunk, hit a Talk a little jump, huh. It's all good if you're feeling inferior. Cause I'm superior, much better than the average bro. Me and my crew sticks tight when we step in the clubs and not getting up high, right? Coming up, trophies, the strangest basketball dream of all, and more in one minute when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. And this week, as every week in our program, we have chosen a theme. We've invited a variety of writers and performers to take a whack at that theme. And this week is the Chicago Bulls. Let me get some music going here for this when I say their names. This week is the Chicago Bulls. There we go. Doesn't that give a satisfying feeling to hear it? It's just one good reason to do a show about the Bulls, that you can play this song over and over. This week is the Chicago Bulls. Kareem passed the winningest season in basketball history through the NBA playoffs. Our theme is basketball. 
and let us ask the question again. What is the meaning of sports? The answer? Trophies. We'll look at that in one way. That's the answer. You know, you compete, you try to win, you make it through the regular season, through the playoffs, the further you get, the bigger the trophy. Sort of. The problem is that trophies do not age well. The further you get from the triumphant moment when you win the trophy, the uglier the trophy becomes. Until, after decades, they just look like dusty, aging clutter, carrying no glory, no numinous power. Well, one of our producers, Nancy Updeg, talked to a friend of hers, a big amateur basketball player, about all this. When I met up with my friend Mary to talk about basketball, she was having some trouble with her trophies. She just moved to a new apartment, and her new place was small, so small that a bunch of high school trophies would just dominate any room they were in. She had the trophies in a box in the living room, and we sat on the floor pulling out fake silver statuettes of girls in culottes, reaching ever upward, hopeful and fit, like in Soviet propaganda posters. Can't you see, like, feeling really tough walking home with something this big, especially if you hold it like this? Sure. <laughs> you grab that baby by the base. Then she found one that was not like the others. Sort of hard to understand, actually. Picture this. A thick slice of wood, sanded and shellacked, and mounted with a miniature rim and backboard, and then leaping across the front, a stick figure made of roofing nails, going in for a slam dunk. Mary identified this as her 1978 girls' varsity team trophy from Cardinal Doherty High School, and the girls, she said, had not been pleased with the trophy at all. It's ugly, isn't it? Yeah, it is truly... So we were all really honest. unhappy. We wanted Will like a traditional, a tree. <laughs> yes. I want it. I want it. We, we would rather have had like the, the also ugly, but much more acceptable old version of trophies than, oh, than sure. those trophies. Oh, sure. I mean, if you're a 13 year old girl, you don't want to be walking home with that. You want no, that. Right, right. That's a trophy. You want something that goes up high in the sky, not something that, you know, is a slice of a tree. <laughs> you don't want a slice of a tree with a nail stick figure soldered together. Yeah, I don't think doing the that. one thing that you know you'll never be able to do, dunk. Was that was that something that you all discussed? Oh yeah, I mean we that and we also thought that that was the only reason we'd never be in the NBA. Luckily for us, we all thought, well, you know, we're we're really, you know, some of the best players on the face of the earth. You know, when you're a 16-year-old girl who's sure. playing on a, you know, a, at a tough Catholic league school like you think yeah we're good enough you know I'm just as good as Maurice Cheeks and you know the doctor would like to play with me and um, Dr. J um, and you know we, we could attribute our lack of you know success in the NBA to the fact that we were girls soon to be women who would never dunk and that's all that was keeping us from it Mary handed me the wood slice trophy and when I reached to touch the stick figure, I realized that one of its feet was on a pivot, so I could actually make it go in for the dunk. Once I discovered this, it was impossible not to do it over and over and over. The trophy was completely hypnotizing, a disturbing artifact from an artistic period best forgotten. That, that, that the art of the late 70s, you know, especially like in Catholic 
um, religion textbooks and, you know, churches and stuff was so ugly. Who knew there was even a, a genre of late 70s Catholic yeah. textbook <laughs> art world? You know, that whole scene. I'm afraid I've been so influenced by it. It's like, you know, I, I need those, to walk away. those little ink drawings that are just a little bit off on purpose, you know what I mean? And the on-purposeness of it is just like, you know. It makes oh, you want to grit your teeth. Me. Yeah, right, right. You can always, like, hear a Cat Stevens song playing in the background. <laughs> As a kid, Mary played basketball mostly with her older brother, Daniel. The two of them roamed around the city together looking for pickup games whenever they could, all summer, every weekend, even at night because the court down the street had lights. It was a way to get out of the house, to escape the chaos of 11 kids in a working-class Irish family in a too-small house on the edge of northeast Philadelphia. Basketball was a place of clear rules and gestures that always made sense. And home was a place where you could get hit for no reason, or find yourself still hungry at the end of a meal. Mary remembered being hungry a lot growing up, a fact always cheerfully denied by the nuns at school. The message was, um, you couldn't be hungry because your parents are saints. Um, and they especially directed it to our family and to all the other families that had um, a lot of kids in them, that our parents were saints because they worked so hard to provide for us. So I thought that I was just, you know, extraordinarily um, greedy, that that I would want to, um, you know, eat when I was hungry. Um, I think that the me playing basketball was a way to say, you know, like if I could use my body in this way that, um, you know, got me status and attention um, and a certain amount of prestige, then, then, then my body was okay in a way, even though, like, it was, I mean, I was way too skinny when I was a kid. Um, and, like, it was cause for concern for the school nurse a couple times. And... Playing basketball was a way to say, you know, you're not, you're not going to have neural damage <laughs> from being malnourished. You're just going to have these other minor malnourished problems. Another good thing about basketball was that it was cheap. Mary bought the family a rim and a basketball for their backyard when she was only seven or eight, using her first communion money. 65 bucks in $5 increments from everyone in her huge family. The only equipment she really needed and could never afford were good shoes. She always had those supermarket checkout line shoes with the hard plastic soles that were completely embarrassing, of course, but also had no grippability. So she would be running down the court and go sliding and be called for traveling. So one year she got up the courage to ask a girl down the block for her old shoes. Her name was Karen, and uh, she had really nice beta bullets, high tops, white, and um, I wanted her sneakers, and because I knew she was getting new ones. And um, in our neighborhood, there is the practice of throwing your old sneakers up over the telephone wires when you're done with them. Um, and most of them were hardly worn out at all. I mean, not. I mean, they. A lot of them, you could see that there was tread missing, but like, it's not like you had ripped through the top of them. Um, and I had asked her for them, and she said, yeah, that she would give them to me when she got her new ones. And um, and it was, 
like I thought that it was a little bit weird that I would ask somebody for their used shoes, but we had other clothes that were used from other people and you know she was tough and she kind of had this like you know she seemed like she'd be the kind of person that could like keep something like that to her and and would know what it meant and um and she did she never told anybody except of course the most important person that she shouldn't have told her mother and her mother got um really upset and told her that she couldn't give them to me and there they were hanging up on the telephone wire my sneakers And I'm sure that her mom did that because she was afraid that if I came home with a pair of used sneakers, that it would be insulting to my mother. I'm sure that they all had this understanding of themselves, like, you know, you don't insult someone else's. You don't insult one of your peers by giving their kids your crappy shoes, even though they're better than the crappy shoes that you bought for them, you know? <laughs> There were always like really beautiful sneakers hanging up on the wires, and there was no way to get them, no way at all. They just like floated up there, and you know what? I think that's when I decided that um, Platonic idealism was true. <laughs> there really was a perfect thing that I would never experience, <laughs> at least while I played in that Catholic league. <laughs> And only I could see them for what they were. <laughs> they only saw a worn-out tread. I saw a season of unforeseen high statistics. <laughs> we talked for two hours about basketball, and we kept returning to the dunk, that special thing boys can do and girls can't and the cruelty of the dunk on that wood slice trophy. A dunk by a stick figure, made of nails, driving home their 18-year-old sense of frustration. They could be the best ball handlers, the best guards, and it didn't matter worth a damn, because they couldn't dunk. All of that captured forever in the last trophy most of them would ever receive. I think it was really kind of thoughtless and the way that like thoughtless things can sometimes have a really nasty edge to them you know like no one and we had a woman on our team who was african-american who was like six three and she couldn't dunk the ball you know what i mean it was like there was no there was no one that we knew who could dunk the ball no not a single woman that we knew and we knew some tall women we knew women who were in college you know i mean we used to i used to have a dream a recurring dream that i dunked the ball you know? What were the circumstances? I was on the baseline. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I, I mean, it was the same. I was in the same position all the time. And it wasn't like the kinds of dunks that you see in real life, like that um, even the best players can do. This was a spectacular dunk because I didn't just get my hands up over the rim, I sailed over the rim, like, with my feet and got above the, um, basket and just, like, slammed the ball down through the thing. Like, I was, like, my whole body was above the rim, you know. Wow. It stayed in bounds the whole time. Mary Conway, talking with her own Nancy Updike. Oh, very young, what will you leave us this time? You're only dancing on this earth for a short while 
And though your dreams may toss and turn you now They will vanish away Like your daddy's best jeans Down in blue Fading up to the sky You know, we were going to play the Cat Stevens here as a joke, but it sounds really good. <laughs> you know, because she mentions Cat Stevens in the piece. But, you know, we don't, we, we don't have time to actually play it because we have, we have another appointment. And our appointment is with Word em up, King Dog and Shack Attack in the house for non trade non quad. Yo, we from Newark, so you know we represent. Yo, E, bring it in. Do you want me to shoot it? This is a rap song by Shaquille O'Neal of the Orlando Magic. Part of our continuing, you know, survey over the course of this radio program of rap stars, basketball stars. What about the Shack Attack? Where's our hook, Black? Yo, yo, we don't need that. Now it's time for me to get wide open. I start smoking. I am no joke. The shack has spoken. I dominate my competition and bust with the ammunition and choose my own opposition. A mad brother from the dunk planet who controls it. Not Janet. You better can it. You better believe I'm coming hardcore for the cause. You better fall before I bust a hole in yours. The shack atrocious, the tall human being. You catch shack a kin dog in the Coliseum. You better make way and stop because I'm hostile. I get hyped like church choir singing gospel. Pass Act 4. Basketball and Commerce. Okay, sure. Michael Jordan has his multi-million dollar Nike and Gatorade endorsements. Dennis Rodman has a national best-selling book, a McDonald's deal. In contrast, the Scotty Pippen Dodge store on Western Avenue in Chicago is, I will argue, the most modest product endorsement in the NBA. It's a car dealership selling Intrepids and Neons and Dodge 4x4s. And right now during the playoffs, the showrooms are filled with balloons and basketball players made out of balloons. The windows are painted with the words, playoff, payoff. But mostly it looks like any other Dodge dealership. A little rundown with posters of Scotty and Bulls insignias here and there. I figured I should have a real Bulls fan with me when I visited, so I brought Bo O'Reilly, a Chicago playwright, a musician, an actor who's been on our program here a few times. And a Scotty Pippen fan, he pressed the owner of the dealership, Nick Farsi, for details about Pippen. But really, what's the guy going to say? Probably one of the nicest people you know, people you ever get to meet. He seems he seems you know publicly to be a very soft-spoken person, very kind of quiet person usually. That's exactly how he is. He's very soft-spoken. He hardly ever gets mad. Mm-hmm. And when he does get mad, then you'll know. <laughs> so yeah. So what does he drive? I think he owns a Porsche and a Mercedes and a Land Rover and occasionally drives a conversion van in the summertime. Note that only the last of these, the conversion van, can actually be purchased at the Scotty Pippen Dodge store. When offered a chance to lie and push some Dodge product, owner Nick Farsi actually seemed to answer our questions honestly, to his credit. He admitted that Scotty only drops in once every couple months, that Scotty has paid a fee for the use of his name, and the business has increased a total of 10 or 15% since they put Scotty's name above the door. People do come in hoping to meet Scotty, or simply to get near the Scotty Pippen magic. And Nick Farsi said that during 1994, when Scotty had a bad year on the court, walked out of a game with 1.8 seconds left, was arrested for carrying an illegal gun, was accused of domestic violence, well, sales did suffer. The business slowed down a little bit, you know. People were nervous. It was almost like a disaster hidden, so, you know. Live by the celebrity endorsement, die by the celebrity endorsement. 
And there is, after all, something a little strange about buying a car from a dealership whose spokesman can sometimes be a bully on the basketball court. I mean, would you want the salesman to knock you around the way that Scotty hurls himself at, say, the New York Knicks? Mr. Farsi says this question misses the point. He, when people come in here, he's not, you know, they're not in competition with Scotty. So it's, when they come here buying a car from they're on Scotty's team. And one way the Scotty Pippen Dodge store makes you feel like you are on Scotty's team is that they let you visit his private office, built specially on the premises with glass windows looking out onto the showroom. Mr. Farsi was kind enough to open it up for Bo and I. Go ahead. The office is paneled with dark, expensive-looking wood. It's much more luxurious than Mr. Farsi's office, though it's clear from the moment you enter that no one does any work here. There are no papers, no clutter. On the wall are a few not-terribly-significant mementos, a picture with the 93 Olympic Dream Team, a license plate with Scotty's number 33 on it. There's a mini-refrigerator, though Bo and I didn't have the nerve to look inside. Bo did take a peek at the private bathroom and saw Scotty's toilet. The most personal possessions in the office are a picture of Scotty's dogs and some amusements. What's the parrot? That's just a toy. <laughs> it's just a toy that he plays with when he's here. He, when he's here, usually he, um, he shoots hoops on the wall. Mm-hmm. And he practices. <laughs> like a little Nerf basketball? Yeah. yeah. So, but how does he play with the parrot? What does it do? Does it, it just repeats everything you want to say. Oh! <laughs> Can we get it to talk to us? Sure. Let's try. Go ahead. You push the button? I'll just say hello. Hello, here we are at the Scotty Pippen store. Oh, here, yep, we're here in Scotty Pippen's office at the Scotty Pippen store. That's great. I can see playing with that all day. Well, here, we'll leave a message for Scotty. Thanks, Scotty, for letting us visit you here in your office here at the Scotty Pippen store. Mr. Farsi guesses that if Scotty does well and the Bulls win the NBA Finals, it could mean as many as 15 or 20 extra Dodge vans, trucks, and cars sold from this store. If the Scotty Pippen Dodge store is the most understated Bulls-related business in this our fair city, with no TV ads, barely any Bulls hype. The most garish manifestation of the merchandising of basketball is downtown. On Michigan Avenue, a combination shoe store and museum called Nike Town. Nike Town is the size of a small department store, reportedly grosses $2.5 million in sales each week. Inside, there are statues of athletes in midair, a 20-foot banner of Michael Jordan with a quote from William Blake underneath, display cases with sports memorabilia, slogans everywhere like play to win, total body conditioning, test your faith, on long banners hung in a mock socialist WPA style. When you go inside Nike Town, there are 18 separate pavilions, each with its own kind of sight and sound environment, like a real basketball court floor and the sounds of squeaking sneakers on hardwood in the area that sells basketball stuff. The sound of tennis balls being hit in another area where they sell tennis stuff. As the writer Andrew Levy points out, it's from a piece he wrote, the buying of goods invokes a sequence of events and images that make the purchase itself playful. Items move from the four-floor storeroom to the cashier stations through clear plastic tubes rimmed with green neon that suggest, as they are meant to, the cartoon future of the Jetsons. 
The direct purchase of goods is designed to appear to be an afterthought. The retail areas are cramped compared to the open atriums designed for the display of art and statuary. And the store's design requires every entering customer to be distracted by considerable aesthetics before reaching any locale where Nike items can actually be purchased. There are whimsical anarchic features everywhere in Nike Town. Tropical fish swim in a 22-foot, 1,000-gallon tank behind the hiking shoe display. A bank of nine television screens embedded beneath the floor nearby flashes images of glimmering swimming pools and waterfalls. It is seductive and very effective at creating sales. I've been down to Nike Town. I've been down to Nike Town. I want to shake this angst I found when I was down in Nike Town. Down in Nike Town. I felt so cyberpunk as I was walking down the hall. They got the shroud of Turin in the toilet stall. I got the semiotic cross training homesick blues. Hey, buddy, is there somewhere quiet where I can focus on some shoes? Now, what is that? Is that a talisman or an artifact of grammatology of some kind? Is that a subject-object dislocation? Oh, it's a shoe? Now, I'm sorry. I'm just so all, like, bewildered and stuff with, with all this gestalt and you got whizzing around here. Is that, what is, just, would you remind me what a shoe is? Is it some kind of a, is it a phoneme? Is it a penumbra? Is, is, that, a, is that the shoe itself or is that the idea of shoe? I nearly drowned in Nike Town. I nearly drowned in Nike Town. I just can't shake this angst I found when I was down in Nike Town. Down in Nike Town. Song stylings of Jewboy Kane, aka Mr. Jeff Dorchin. Act Five. One more dream. This dream was probably the, the biggest dream in my life as far as changing the way I was. We began this hour with dreams about the bulls, and the most intense dream that anybody came to us with about the bulls came from a guy named Brett Grossman. In his dream, Michael Jordan appears both as Brett's dead father and as Christ, healing and taking away pain. Brett says that he's had other dreams where Michael Jordan is crucified on a cross made of baseball bats. But in this dream, the one that, that changed his life, there are kind of two big scenes. One is this traumatic event in Brett's life where his father died when he was a kid, and um, which he feels a lot of pain about. And the other is uh, the scene where um, there's a huge coliseum, like a Roman coliseum, and in the middle there's a basketball court, and there's Michael Jordan on the court alone trying to make a shot, trying to jump and lift off the ground. And I'm feeling like Michael Jordan, something is grabbing him, pulling him down. And he's just, with all his strength, he's just jumping as high as he can. And it's like there's this pressure from below that it's just ripping on him, pulling him down, and he's just suspended in there. And as if his will, his will and the pressure of the world and the gravity are at complete odds and smashing against each other, and his body is just ripping apart. And the whole entire crowd erupts, everyone's screaming, going crazy, but it's this maniacal, it's like we're all watching someone being killed. And every time the ball dribbles, my pain becomes a little less. And Michael Jordan is just grimacing. And no one is going to help him. And I'm sitting there feeling like my pain is becoming lessened and lessening. And, and there was all this pain that Michael Jordan had absorbed for me. And 
somehow Michael Jordan, though, had for this one second basically neutralized a pain that I had felt my whole life, and this pain with my father, and a pain of just, you know, of your, your existence, of being alone. And for this one second, I could feel it. It was, it was the first time in my life that I ever, and I woke up from the dream, I ever realized that that's a possibility, that the pain is something that you don't necessarily need to feel all the time to understand it. Why Michael Jordan? If you're going to have a dream like this, why Michael Jordan? Be- because it, there's, this, there's this thing. There's Michael Jordan... Um, and you see it in his eyes, and it happened during the Miami s- series of this year. He, it's, uh, I don't know how it is, but his eyes turn inward. He becomes very serious and solemn, and you feel that he is taking everyone on the team and just taking all their faults, all their backaches, all their problems, all their ego trips, and he's cushioning them for them. He's saying, look, I'm Michael Jordan. I'm going to win the game. You know that. Stop. Just let it all loose, and we're going to win the game. And, uh, I mean, I'll be at home watching the game on my chair with my bottle of water, going crazy, and I see Michael's eyes, and suddenly it's like, okay, I can relax. He's going to win it for me. And that feeling, it, it's, it's, it's crazy, but that feeling is something that I think you get from, you get that from a god, and you get that from, um, whether false or not, you get that from a religion and an idol. That here's somebody who's going to solve my problems and, 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 and heal my pain. Heal my pain and take, take away the indecision. There's nothing to worry about because he's going to win the game. Well, hopefully we Chicagoans will get to see that look in Michael Jordan's eyes again soon. Our program was produced today by Peter Clowney and myself, with Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Doris Wilbur, contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rockland. Special thanks today to Rick Carr for recording the Bulls theme, Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2, Forest on Acoustic Guitar. That's the music you're hearing right here. Thanks also to Brett Grossman for all the other records used in today's show. If you would like a copy of this program, it is only 10 bucks. You can call us at WBEZ, that phone number, 312-832-3380. Again, 312-832-3380. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.